Have you ever been in a classroom or maybe in a meeting and somebody asks a question and you answer it out loud and you give the wrong answer? Anybody ever been there? Oh my gosh, it's the most awkward feeling on the entire planet. I had this happen to me actually last week. I was in Atlanta, Georgia at our denominational headquarters and I was down there for a pastor's conference and there were like 300 other pastors and ministry leaders from around North America. Like this was a really exciting opportunity for me. And we're inside of one of the sessions and the speaker is up on stage and during his talk, he's using one of my favorite movies in the world as an illustration of the point that he's making. The movie that he used was The Goonies. Anybody a fan of The Goonies in here? All right, a few of you children of the 80s, right on. I appreciate you, you are my people. So he's using The Goonies as an illustration. And during the message, he's actually kind of um, telling the plot of the movie, right? So he gets to this moment where the, the speaker says to all of us that are sitting in the crowd, he says, okay, so then the kids discover a treasure map And they decide to go hunt for this treasure so that they can save their neighborhood. And then he looks at the audience. Again, I'm sitting there. And he says, does anybody remember the name of the pirate who had the treasure that the kids were going to search for? Do you guys remember? One-Eyed Willie, somebody got it. Nicely done. I appreciate that a whole lot. I knew the answer. I really did. It's one of my favorite movies. I've seen it dozens and dozens of times. But when he asked that question, does anybody remember the name of the pirate whose treasure the kids were going to find? Before anybody else in the audience could say a word, with full confidence and volume, I said, Chester Copperpot! (laughs) Now, if you're a Goonies fan, you know that Chester Copperpot was a character in the movie, but it was a different character. So as soon as I yelled out Chester Copperpot, I realized, ah, crap, I said the wrong answer in front of all of these other pastors. Immediately, like 40 other people were like, no, it was one-eyed Willie. (laughs) If that wasn't embarrassing enough, the speaker on stage looked right at me and he said, well, at least you tried. And 300 people started laughing at me. My face turned the color of my shoes And I just kind of sunk down in my seat. You know, I was like, oh, I wish the ground would open up and swallow me whole right now because it was painfully embarrassing to scream out the wrong answer when a question is asked. Hey, the reason that I tell you that story this morning is that I think in our world, there are a lot of people that are asking questions about religion, about faith about what it means to follow Jesus. There are people that are asking the questions. And just like I experienced inside of that that conference session, I think there are a lot of voices that are shouting answers to the questions that people are asking. But I'm concerned that most of the answers that people are shouting out are not, in fact, correct. I'm afraid that the questions people are asking are good questions, but the data and the answers that they're getting are not particularly accurate or strong or right. I think there are a lot of common narratives about faith and religion in our world. There are a lot of things that people take as just accepted wisdom and people repeat them as if, of course, everybody knows these things are true. But I'm afraid that when we really dig into the data, when we look at the research, when we examine what is actually true, most of what our world says about faith and people of faith is actually not borne out by the facts themselves. And so 
In this series, we're calling Reasons to Believe. What we're doing is we're looking at these common things that people say about faith in God in general or um, about Christianity and following Jesus in particular. And although what the world tells us about these issues is they're often repeated loudly and, and often, I wanna look at the actual research, the actual data, and to find out is the, the, the things that we hear about religion and faith, are they actually true? Or are we all just repeating the same information that actually turns out to be false? Then the other thing we're gonna do is um, each week, I'm gonna give you one little piece of evidence that might point you towards the fact or the understanding that a belief in God is reasonable, okay? A belief in God is at least reasonable. And I think a belief in God following Jesus with your whole life is the best life of all. And it best fits the evidence that we have in front of us. Now, um, I want to highlight that word evidence for just a moment, because as I told you last week, although this series is called Reasons to Believe, this series is about offering evidence and not proof. Okay, I'm not going to be able to prove to you that God exists. I can't do that. There is nobody on the planet who can do that. If I hired the greatest Christian apologist to come and speak this morning, he would probably do a better job than me or she probably would, but you know what? They wouldn't be able to convince you beyond any reasonable doubt, beyond any shred of proof that God exists. It's an impossibility. Instead, what we wanna do is we wanna look at the evidence. What are the clues in front of us that have been built into creation, that have been built into sociology and and into humanity? What are the clues that would point us towards God? And then I just wanna let you guys draw your own conclusions. I'll tell you where that evidence has led me, but you get to make up your own mind. You can choose to believe or you can choose not to believe. So this is about evidence. It's not about proof. And then I'll tell you, this is intended at least to be a discussion and not a debate. This is intended to be a discussion and not a debate. I don't, I I, want to have a conversation. I don't want to have a confrontation. I'm not trying to, you know, demonstrate that you're wrong. And I don't want us to get into this entrenched, like polarized debate back and forth. I don't think that's helpful. We see it all the time online and it goes nowhere. So instead, I want us to start a conversation. And thankfully, last week, this is exactly what I was able to experience. I had people stop me in the lobby after the service. I had people send me emails, and that's wonderful. They were skeptical people, or they were even believers, and they wanted some clarification, or they wanted to maybe bring in an alternate point that perhaps I hadn't considered. And it was really cool to have four or five deep, meaningful conversations with people surrounding some of these reasons to believe. And so if you're here this morning, and something I say, it piques your curiosity, or it triggers you in some way, rather than just arguing with me in your head, I would love it if you'd send me an email. That's my actual personal email address on the screen. Um, You can take note of it in case you ever want to complain later, but I'm putting it up today so that those of you guys who want to continue the conversation, we can do that. Send me a message, we'll grab coffee or we'll chat online, okay? So let's kick off this morning by challenging a common narrative about Christianity. One of the beliefs that seems to be very prevalent about faith in God um, in our world. So this is the common narrative we're going to start with today, that Christianity is a white Western religion that reflects the values and views of that particular culture. Now, I know most people in our world would not articulate that. They wouldn't walk around saying, I'm not a Christian because that's a white man's religion. They wouldn't do that. Although there are some, there are places in the world where this happens, of course. But where we see this play out 
is that this becomes kind of the unspoken assumption when we're talking about Christianity. That is, when we speak of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and and who and what followers of Jesus are in the world, typically the picture that most people have in their mind is a white person of Western European descent right? Like somebody like me, quite frankly. That's what we assume we're talking about when we talk about Christians. But, and and let me also say that another time, another place that you see this is if you go to other parts of the world. So like if you've ever gone on a mission trip or you ever go, you know, just travel around the world, particularly to places that are not white and European, um, what you'll find is most people in that culture assume that everybody in North America and everybody in, in Western Europe at least is a Christian, right? Have you ever experienced that? Maybe you came from another culture and before you got here, you just kind of assumed, oh, Canada is a Christian country. Everybody who's there is a Christian. And then you got here and you're like, Oh, not so much, right? So we see this as an unspoken assumption in our society. When we start talking about Christians, we tend to think of them as this very homogenous group of people. Now, if you were here last week, you know that I told you that Christianity is actually shifting south and east in our world. That for for a couple hundred years at least, you know, North America and Western Europe, this has been the population center, so to speak, the cultural center of Christianity. But now we're going south. South and east. And so you might be thinking to yourself, well, Dan, like this is basically the same thing you already told us last week, man. This is week two, and you're already running out of stuff to say. Like, Ugh. no, I'm not going to rehash what I told you last week. Instead, I want to make a different point, and one that I think is subtly distinct, but oh, oh, so important. The point that I want to make, and the challenge I want to make to this common narrative is this when you look at the data, when you look at the facts, Christianity is the most evenly distributed of all worldviews. Christianity is the most evenly distributed of all worldviews on the planet. So I've got this map here on the screen and in the map, blue represents Christianity, but you'll see lots of other colors representing other faith systems. So gray is people who identify as atheist or agnostic. Yellow is Buddhist, orange is Hindu. Jewish is this tiny little sliver there. I can't even make out the color. I think it's red. Then we got Muslims and other as well. And when you look at this map, this population distribution of Christians around the world, I want you to notice that blue far and away spreads across the geography and the cultures of our world. That if we could put it this way, Christianity crosses cultural and racial, economic, linguistic, and geographic lines in a way that no other worldview or belief system does on the planet. Now, I think this is so very fascinating, and I think it's a pretty important clue. Why? Because one thing that's often like a challenge that's often made uh, towards religion in general is that it's basically just a cultural expression, right? That people, they develop a religion, whatever it might be, and that faith reflects the values and the views of the society that in which it developed, right? And so we think of religion as being a fairly localized and kind of homogenous thing. Everybody looks the same. They all come from the same background. And that's why they believe what they do. 
Okay, And so then that leads us to conclude, well, listen, your religion is a product of your culture, but your culture is not the same as everybody else's culture on the planet. Therefore, you probably shouldn't try to proselytize, that is to get other people to join your religion. You probably shouldn't tell other cultures what would be right or what would be wrong, what they should value or what they shouldn't value, because you, all of that just comes from your one culture. And there are so many other cultures around the world. Now, If we look again at the numbers, this is exactly what we see in every other religion on the planet or worldview. It encompasses people who have non-religions as well. That the distribution, the number, the location, and the type of people that would follow that particular faith system is actually extremely homogenous. Let me put a few more graphs here on the screen for you. And if you look at this information, what you find is the population distribution of all these different world faith systems. And in particular, each one of these maps and charts, it describes where in the world half the followers of that particular religion are located. How many countries, how many continents, how many locations around the world do you need to get to before you find half the people or more who live in or who follow this particular religion? So when you look at the data, you know what you find out? 94% of Hindus live in India. 94%. They're all concentrated in one particular location and culture. We find that 81% of Jews live in Israel and the U.S. That is, you only have to go to two countries to find the vast majority of all the Jews in the world. We find that um, China and India contain 63% of other religions, smaller faith systems that are maybe not one of the world's major faiths. So most of the other religious people are located there in that region. Most of the unaffiliated people, people who claim to be agnostic or atheist, you might expect that they live in North America, you might expect that they live in Europe, but in reality, the vast majority of them live in China. You can go to this one country and you can find more than half of all the quote unquote non-believers in that one space. And of course, when we look on and we talk about Buddhism, of course, China is the primary location. You can find 50% of the Buddhists in the world that live right there in China. We find 63% or 53% rather of the Muslims live in these eight cultures, six cultures actually, um, Nigeria, Egypt, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and also in Indonesia. But when we talk about Christians and Christianity, what we find is that Christians are spread across cultures and geographies and nations at a rate that far exceeds any other faith system on the planet. You have to go to 11 different countries on nearly every continent on the planet before you find half of the world's Christians. Now, again, I think this is a super clue to God's existence or perhaps even to the truth of Christianity. Why is that? Well, that's because if I asked you to, if I said, hey, picture a typical Hindu, we would all picture somebody who is fairly alike. And the person we would picture would line up with the data that we actually see. But if I said, hey, picture a typical Christian, You might picture a white person. You could also picture a Nigerian. You could also picture somebody from South America. There is this diversity in the Christian faith that I think is really, really interesting. 
Because let's assume for a moment, and I know that many of you don't believe this, but let's assume for a moment that there is a God who created all of humanity. Everybody, white people and brown people and men and women and you know, all over. And this God wants to have a relationship with everybody. The true religion, the one that actually leads to a relationship with him, it would have to be universal and not localized to a specific culture. It would have to transcend cultural values and geographies. It would not be just localized to this one little section of the planet. If there was a God and he wanted a relationship with everybody, then his faith, his religion, you would see it spread to all different people throughout all different times in history, throughout all different cultures and throughout all different languages. This is precisely what we see with Christianity that Christians are spread more diversely and uniformly in the world than any other faith system. And quite frankly, it's not even close. Another thing that you might expect is that um, a, a true religion, a faith that leads to God would equally challenge and affirm different parts of different cultures. What I mean by that is if you study some of the faith systems that are concentrated in one particular country or geography, what you find out is that the, the, the teachings of that particular religious system are heavily reflective of the local cultures and customs of the time. But again, if there was a God who was trying to create a worldwide movement of his people, he was trying to have a relationship with every color and, and language and, and culture of people, you would find that whatever he had to say would affirm some parts of every culture and they would challenge other parts of every culture. And this is, again, precisely what we see in Christianity. That's so, so fascinating to me. This is one of those thoughts, this is one of those facts that has really lodged into my brain over the years because I think about what the scripture says in Revelation chapter number seven, verse nine. In Revelation 7, 9, this guy who was named John, he was one of Jesus' original 12 followers. The Bible says long after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, but a few decades after that, John is given a vision of heaven. And when he has this vision of heaven, I want you to look at how he describes what he sees. I'll put it here on the screen for you. In Revelation chapter number seven, he says, after this, I saw a vast crowd that was too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language. And they were all standing in front of the throne and before the lamb who is Christ. John said, God's plan is to bring every type of person into a relationship with him. And that in the end, there is not one person who will be excluded from a relationship with God because of their skin color or because of their gender or because of the place they were born or the language they have. That this invitation to be known and loved by your creator is available to every single person. Jesus predicted this before he ascended into heaven. In Acts chapter number one, verse eight, he told his followers, listen, the message that I've given you, it's gonna spread. It starts out in Jerusalem, this one little city. You guys are basically a cult in this town. Nobody takes you seriously. And then this message is gonna spread from Jerusalem and it's gonna go out to Samaria, Judea and then to Samaria, which was the region. And he says, eventually this word is gonna spread to the very ends of the earth. 
So if there is a true religion, you would expect it to be embraced by people of all backgrounds and types and cultures. And I'll just tell you again, you can be, you can not like what the data says, but you can't argue with the data that Christianity is the most uniformly distributed of all the world's faith systems. So let me do this. Maybe I can make it a little more real and not as data-driven. Would you do me a favor and just look around this morning? I know some of you are in theater seats. It's kind of hard to twist and look back around. But would you do that? Would you just look around for a moment? Here in this one silly little auditorium in Balzac, Canada, we have people every skin color, every ethnic background, people whose native tongues are completely different from one another. We have folks who are different genders, different sexual orientations, different economic circumstances. We have different political parties represented in this room. For goodness sake, we even have country music fans in here, you guys. Like, You see what I'm saying? Some booze and some cheers. This is what I'm talking about. Listen, the diversity and the unity of the church of Jesus is a miracle that runs contrary to the rest of our culture. And listen, if you are a skeptical person, that's cool. I get it. I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't believe any of this foolishness. But if you're a skeptical person, you have to give some sort of apologetic or you have to come to some sort of non-supernatural explanation for why the church of Jesus has been able to do what no other belief system or political party or cultural ideology has been able to do in history. It's been able to unite people across the world with different values and different looks and different backgrounds. And it's brought us all together in unity under the banner of our savior, Jesus Christ. Man, that's good. I like that an awful lot. I am proud to be a part of this multi-ethnic, international family of God. And to me, again, you can draw a different conclusion, but I think that's just a, a neat little piece of evidence that there is some real truth to this word. Okay, let me move on. Let me give you a piece of evidence maybe for God. And this will be a little bit shorter. We're gonna wrap up, I think, pretty quick uh, this morning. Let me give you a piece of evidence that would cause you to say, you know what? Maybe I should believe in God, right? Not just challenging the, the wrong ideas of our culture. Let me give you some information that might lead you a little bit closer to God, okay? You ready for it? All right. Religious people, live quantitatively better lives than non-religious people. All right, I know that is a spicy statement, okay? I know it is. And I will explain to you what I mean and what I don't mean in just a moment. So if you're like, bro, you wanna fight? Let's go. Just give me a moment, okay? I promise you I'll explain what I mean and what I don't mean, but I'll be able to back this claim up. Before I do that, let me read you a couple of quotes from very famous atheists in our world. And and you'll kind of understand why I'm even making this claim and making this point. Because again, the common narrative in our world is that if you become religious, you become a pretty terrible person. So look at these two quotes. We'll put both of them here on the screen for you. The first one is from a guy named Richard Dawkins. He's probably the most well-known atheist in our day. And this is what he had to say. 
It is fashionable to wax apocalyptic about the threat posed to humanity by things like the AIDS virus, mad cow disease, and many others. But I think a case can be made that faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but much harder to eradicate. That belief, yeah, pretty savage, right? For sure. It gets worse. Um, Belief is harmful. It's detrimental. It is like a disease inside of people that we need to cure. Another famous atheist, Sam Harris, he said this, my concern with religion is that it allows us by the millions to believe what only lunatics or idiots could believe on their own. All right, tell us what you really think, Sam. Man, I feel like you're kind of holding back a little bit. Go ahead, just tell us. It is not uncommon to hear people in our world, whether they say it as bluntly as this or they kind of couch it in different ways. It is not uncommon to hear people say that religion makes people worse. That when you become a person of faith, and it doesn't even matter what the faith system is in most cases, you will necessarily become narrow-minded, bigoted, obnoxious, intractable. You will just not become a very pleasant person because religion is a negative. It is, an, it is a disease that needs to be dealt with in, in our lives. And here's the deal. I cannot deny that some people become narrow-minded and bigoted and obnoxious and intractable when they come to faith. You're like, yes, Dan, I know. I've dated a couple of them. They're there. They exist, okay? We know that. But is that typical? Do people who have no faith affiliation and then they become followers of Jesus or followers of another faith system even, do they necessarily start living worse lives than before they had any faith at all? When you look at the research, what you find out is that people who convert to some form of religious practice, they are neither lunatics nor are they ruining the world. In fact, let me throw some some pieces of data here on the screen. Belief in God is good for you. Belief in God is good for you. That when you look, again, this is research. It's not done by Christians. We're not using fake pastor math here. When When we take sociologists and we have them conduct perfectly valid, peer reviewed, double blind, whatever sort of studies you wanna use, we find that people who have high levels of religious faith or practice in their life, they are happier than people who do not. When you ask them, and we could simplify the data, and we could say, if you were to ask somebody who is a person of faith, how happy would you say you are on a scale of one to 10? And then you ask somebody who had no religious faith the same question. The faith-based person would rate themselves as happier than the non-faith-based. Now that's correlation, not causation. I get it, but it's interesting. We find that people of faith have better health than people of non-faith. People who are followers, active participants in some sort of religious system tend to have better health outcomes than people who don't. And listen, there could be a lot of explanations for this because people of faith are less likely to engage in risky or unhealthy behaviors. People are less likely to drink too much or to smoke or to use recreational drugs or whatever it might be. So that could be part of the reason. But let's not ignore the fact that whatever it is that faith is causing these people to do, they are living healthy your lives as a result. I think that's pretty interesting. People who are active religiously, they live longer lives. 
They do. You can look at the data. People who go to church once a week, or a couple times a month is, I think, actually the number they use. If you're active in your faith, you will live a longer life. Why is that? Nobody's totally sure. There are some reasons or some ideas, but nobody's absolutely certain. Okay, people who are religiously active have better marriages. It's, it is a data point that sociologists have known for a long time, many, many decades, that if you take a religious couple or in you, and you take a non-religious couple and you ask the religious couple, hey, rate your marriage on a scale of one to 10, and then you ask the same question to the non-religious couple, the religious, the people of faith will have a happier marriage on average. Of course, that's not the, you know, it's not the same for everybody. There are people of faith who have absolutely miserable marriages and there are people uh, who are non-believers and they have incredible marriages that would be an example to us all. But on average, typically speaking, for whatever reason you wanna decide, people of faith, tend to have better or stronger marriages. Hey, people of faith are more sexually satisfied in their life. Hello. Listen, if you are actively involved in your faith along with your spouse, you will say that you have a better sex life than people who are not actively involved in faith. I think that's interesting. I don't totally know why that is, but if you want a better sex life, believe in God. Apparently there's some sort of connection between the two. People who are actively religious are on the whole more generous than people who are not. Listen, I'm not saying that you're stingy. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying when you look at the typical charitable giving into the church and to other organizations outside of the church, people of faith are much, and I mean much more charitable than people who don't have any faith. They also volunteer more hours both in the church, but of course also without. And then another data point that I could put here, and there are many more, this is just a few. People of faith, people who are active in their religion, they are more social. They have more friendships than people who don't. So it's important that I point out a couple things here, okay? Um, This applies to people who are active in their faith, not people who merely affiliate with some faith right? So like if you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church once a year, twice a year. You'll look at your life and you're like, well, I don't feel like I have that many great friendships and I'm not satisfied with my marriage. And boy, I don't feel like I have better health than the average person. It's when you're active in your faith that there is some sort of correlation, perhaps even causation in which you will live a better life. Now, let me say what I don't mean when I say better. I do not mean, I am not saying that Christians are more moral than non-Christians or non-believers. I'm not saying that we are better people. That is not it at all. What I am saying is that the evidence is very clear. Active belief in God increases both the perceived and actual quality of your life. It perceives, it increases rather the perceived and the actual quality of your life. This is so important because many people, many of you guys, you, you've been on the fence and you've been thinking about becoming a Christian and you're kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen to me though. Like if, if, I'm, if I go all in, if I make a decision, if I identify as a follower of Jesus, am I going to get weird? Is my life going to get worse? Am I going to become judgmental? Am I gonna be less open-minded? Will I be less rational? Will I be less of a healthy, whole, integrated person? 
But again, when you look at the evidence, it shows us that people who are the most active in their faith and religious practices are actually the happiest, most productive, and well-adjusted people in society. Again, I'm just telling you what the data says. That means that even if you don't believe in God, you should live like you do because you will actually experience better things in life if you get involved and if you get plugged in. Now, this is exactly what Jesus told us was gonna happen. John chapter number 10, verse 10, is probably the most important verse to us here at Connect Church. In John 10, 10, Jesus says this. He says, there is a thief and his purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, my purpose is to give everyone a truly rich and satisfying life. Here at Connect, we shorten that to hashtag life overflowing because that is what God offers us. And I'm telling you, if Jesus was wrong about this, then we would expect the data to show us that people who become Christians, they become active followers of Jesus, their life gets worse but it doesn't, it gets better because Jesus promises that if we will follow him, we will experience a truly rich and truly satisfying life. That's why when we invite you to follow Jesus here at Connect, we're not asking you to join a particular tribe we're not inviting you to, to, you know, become one of us and, you know, to stop being. Yeah, we just, we're inviting you into a movement of God that is worldwide and it encompasses every single type of person on the planet. And when we invite you to follow Jesus, we're not asking you to, to take on yourself a bunch of religious rules and pressures. Instead, we are extending to you the invitation to, the, to have a, a, a relationship with your creator that is based on grace and peace and freedom. To me, it, it's just mind boggling that anybody would say no to a, a relationship with Jesus because he tells us it's the best life imaginable. And when we look at the research and the data and we look at the experience of the vast majority of people, we find that Jesus is so, so correct. I took the plunge when I was 17 years old. I went all in with Jesus and I found out that he was correct. In him, I found a rich and satisfying life that I could not find anywhere else. So this morning, I want you to know that the only thing that's standing between you and this overflowing life is you. You're the only thing. If you want it, you can have it. All you have to do is reach out and ask Jesus for it. And he promises that he will give you this life overflowing if you'll simply surrender to him and follow him each and every day. I wanna pray for you. And if you say, hey, Dan, I want you to pray for me then uh, I just want you to, to do this. Bow your heads, close your eyes, please. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna pray for you. And if, if you're like, yeah, this is me, this is what I need. I need this overflowing life. Then you might repeat this simple prayer after me. You might say, Jesus, I need your life. I wanna trade mine for the good one that you promise. And I'm trusting you to give me a truly rich and satisfying life. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for giving me a fresh start. I pray all this in your name. Amen. My friends, if you've made that decision, 
we wanna know about it. You can mark your card. My wife will tell you how you can do that and we can pray for you and get you some resources in your hand. Um, But I am so incredibly glad that you're here. And I trust and pray that in your following Jesus every single day, you are experiencing this truly rich, satisfying life that he promises to us. 